Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Rollbar. Move fast and fix things like we do here at Changelog. Check them out at Rollbar.com slash Changelog. Resolve your errors and minutes into deployable confidence. Catch your errors in your software before your users do. And if you're not using Rollbar yet or you haven't tried it yet, they want to give you $100 to donate to open source via Open Collective. And all you got to do is go to Rollbar.com slash Changelog, sign up, integrate Rollbar into your app. And once you do that, they'll give you $100 to donate to open source. Once again, rollbar.com slash changelog. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific at changelog.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the show at changelog.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JS Party FM. And now on to the show. Party on, party people. Let's make some noise. Divya is in the house. Jump, jump, rejoice. What's up, Divya? Welcome to JS Party. Hey, hey. Glad to have you. Now, Divya, let me ask you a very serious question. When I say to you, up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, BA, what do you think of? Uh, Like a video game of some form? I don't know. A video game. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Very good. Today's show is all about video games, or at least a specific video game, or maybe not even games in general, but cheat codes specifically and we have a very awesome guest here to talk to us about konami js george mandis is on the show george thanks for joining the party thanks for having me we are excited to talk about konami js first of all give us the history of this maybe talk about the konami code in general because maybe some people didn't play contra back in the day like <laughs> i did because as soon as i hear those words i always gotta throw the select start in there at the end because mm -hmm. you want to get that two player oh. for your 30 lives <laughs> Not actually part of the Konami code, but I always memorize it, you know, BA select start because I got to get P2 going. But I have that frame of reference. I'm sure a lot of our listeners don't have that frame of reference. Tell us about the Konami code and then we'll talk about Konami JS and uh, how it got started. Yeah, definitely. I, I think maybe we're in a similar age demographic, you and I, because you and I probably remember, remember it that way. I used to think start was actually the end of the code for a very long time until, until the internet corrected me at some point. <laughs> Um, but yeah, going back to what uh, the Konami code is exactly, uh, this goes back to the original Nintendo gaming system back in the you know late 80s through early mid 90s, however you want to look at it. And there was a game company called Konami, and with a lot of their games, they included a sequence of um, basically button inputs you could do on the controller to enable certain features in the game, to enable certain uh, upgrades or shortcuts or easter eggs or you know things of that ilk and mm -hmm. for all of their not all of their games but many of their games it was the same sequence of um inputs on the controller and because it was by konami it kind of became known uh, as the konami code i remember reading about that in game magazines and things like that back in the early 90s it was the coolest thing to know the code because back then like pre-internet Cheat codes mm -hmm. were very hard to come by. I remember mm -hmm. Nintendo had a game genie where you could actually do sheets like that. But beyond that, it was like secret sauce to know a cheat code. And so you wanted to tell everybody. And so showing that to your friends was always like a way to be cool in video game terms. 
back in the mm-hmm. day. And when it came to Contra specifically, it's pretty much required because it was one of the hardest games of all time. <laughs> a, a side-scrolling shooter where you're kind of a platforming shooter, one or two players, and you get three lives by default. And there's just no, I mean, unless you're awesome, there's just no way that a kid's going to make it through Contra all the way. But if you, if you can do the Konami code, each of you get 30 lives instead of three, which is actually the right number for making it through. I mean, generally speaking, you can complete Contra with 30 lives, but just no way with three lives. At least I couldn't because I didn't have those skills. So very, it became very popular for that reason. Kind of a viral code because, yeah, you want to share it with your friends. It's a two-player game. And uh, I remember you used to like write it down and try it over and over again until you can get it right. What other... Is, did they use it in a bunch of their games? Because Contra was the only frame of reference that I had. But did it become a thing that like all Konami games or many Konami games used that code? I, I think... I know Contra was the original one, as I understand mm-hmm. it. I'm sure they used it in... I mean, there's probably a list somewhere. I remember using it in a lot of other Konami games as a kid. I can't remember specifically which ones, but um, it was it was frequent enough. And I think other it, it became such a well known code. I remember some other non Konami companies would sometimes put that code into their games as sort of an homage to that to enable certain things. So Divi and I were just chatting before the show started about video games because we were talking about home offices and the fact that she's got a Nintendo Switch in her living room and doesn't want to office out of her living room because you got the Switch right there. Divya, you mentioned that you have been playing a lot of Switch games, but you're not a, a lifelong gamer. Or you haven't been around. Are you familiar with Contra or did you play that at all? I actually don't know what that is <laughs> because, yeah, like you said, I didn't I didn't grow up playing video games. It's not that I mean, maybe I am like not in that demographic, but I also like am not in my car- my own demographic because I did I did not play video games. I only know like. I think my brother had like one of those like PlayStation, like the Nintendo Game Boys. Um, mm-hmm. But that's the only <laughs> like I didn't actually play a game. I, I played games on PC, which was like, I don't know, very different. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm on the Wikipedia page, which we'll put in the show notes for those not familiar with Contra. I don't blame you. It was released in February 2nd or February 20th, 1987. So, I mean, we're going back there. That being said, I do believe it's on the new NES Classic. So if you're after it and you want to give it a shot, you can get that NES Classic. At, was it 60 bucks, something like that, maybe $90? Uh, if you can find one and you can catch up on all your Contra needs. So George, tell us about Konami Code or Konami JS. This is something that's been around for a while. I remember seeing it back in the day. And of course, being a Contra fan, I was like, this is awesome. Um, <laughs> but I didn't realize it was still around. I didn't, you know, you just don't think about with certain JavaScript libraries. like. The people that build them or their history and stuff like that so how did, how did konami js come to be right so i remember in um in i think it was uh, early 2009 or so um i'd been a freelance web developer for like a few years at that point like almost three years i think and i remember reading an article about uh someone had figured out that if you enter the konami code while you're on espn.com a bunch of unicorns show up on the page or something goofy like that that's mm. I think it was using like the Cornify library or something like that, which might still be around also. Um, and I thought, oh, that's really funny. And I went and I checked it out. And that's great. And that spawned a bunch of articles about um, you know, other websites you can go to that have secret Konami code things hidden away. And there was a few of them. And I think shortly after that, Facebook came out with one. And um, at the time, I was like, oh, that, that feels like it'd be a fun thing to make. And a lot of tutorial articles kept popping up on how to do that. Most of them using jQuery because jQuery dominated like 99% of the web, it felt like at that point for JavaScript stuff, you know, and I thought, well, that makes sense. But even even in 2009, there was a part of me that was like, 
I wonder if there's a way I can make this not jQuery dependent because I don't want to have to load that for something this stupid. <laughs> you know, <laughs> feels feels kind of heavy handed. Yeah, so I I saw that I thought it was cool and I wrote a little um, non jQuery dependent implementation and I put it out there and that was fine and a few people I put it out there on uh, Google Code at the time which we can talk about later and it you know a few people picked it up and that was great and then I also had at that point I had the first iPhone like I had the slowest smallest iPhone that was ever in existence basically I had the four gigabyte initial one and I loved that thing and I thought well. It'd be kind of cool if my somehow the Konami code could also work on my phone. There's got to be a way, and so I, I extended my my little Konami JS library to include touch events, so that you could um, do the Konami code on on smartphones, and and that's when it really took off because you know it was pretty easy to copy and paste the code that made the um, or to come up with your own code that just listened for a sequence of key events. But the uh, the touch events were a little trickier. There's a little more going on there, and so I think. That's what made my library at the time just slightly different enough to be worth using. And for whatever reason, it just kind of caught on at that point. Um, and a lot of people started using it. I think the other thing that made it popular at the time is I, I tried to make it really easy to use for people that were not necessarily developers. I, I had an example, and it was literally two lines of code. If you just wanted to throw an Easter egg in your site where after you enter the Konami code, it redirects to another website. Here are the two lines you copy and paste somewhere into your blog or whatever, and you just change the URL to where you want it to redirect to. Um, so I think somewhere between the touch events and the like ease of use for non-developers, it was popular at the time. It just hit at the right time. Curious about the touch events. The how do you? So it's up, up, down, down. Is it? Is it? Are they swipes? Do you touch the top part of the screen? How would it work with mobile? They're they're swipes. So the swipes map pretty well. You know, you you swipe up. Or up, you swipe down for down, etc. Um, the part where I sort of cheated and I note about it in the documentation is for A and B, we just do two taps because I couldn't think of a much better way to to do that. So technically, technically, it's like up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, tap, tap <laughs> when you're doing it on your phone because it seemed like a reasonable trade-off. I thought, you know, we could, if you want to be really elaborate, we could try to like actually draw the letter B on the screen or something, but that's... Um, I mean, at the time in particular, I think that that seemed like a little bit much. So is it like, this is definitely my ignorance around like what constitutes a Konami code. Like, do you have examples of what a Konami code would look like or be? Because you mentioned a little bit about how it was on different sites. There was like unicorns on a page. And is it just like various, it can be any form of an Easter egg on a page. Like it's not a specific type. Yeah, so I guess by, I don't know what the exact definition of an Easter egg is, but um, I, anything that's hidden and I guess by my definition a little useless. But um, yeah, so I mean, there, there's a lot of different applications. The ESPN one was the first one I remember noticing in the wild. We got a lot of attention, just added unicorns all over the page. If you go to HuffPost.com, they're actually using Konami.js. And if you enter the Konami code right now, it changes the title of HuffPost to FluffPost and all of the photos get changed with like, pets and people's dogs mostly it actually it made me laugh i discovered that like a while ago it really surprised me that actually it was still being used because you know it's not a terribly difficult <laughs> thing to write but it's i think like i i've described this project it's like just simple enough that you feel like you shouldn't need a library but just ever so slightly more you know it's just non-trivial enough that you might as well just include this library 
Yeah, so like HuffPost has it, like Marvel.com used it way back in the day, which is a funny story. Um, I, I actually, I wish I'd done more, at, you know, over the years to kind of document where it was used because I, I kind of retroactively started researching it when I decided it'd be a fun story to tell. And I actually went through archive.org of all places and I could find like old references and sometimes old snippets of like sites that had used it. Like I know Tesla.com used to, um, you could like design your car online and they had extra features enabled if you entered the Konami code. I don't know exactly what, cause I've never, I've never bought a Tesla, so I don't really know. But, um, you know, just all kinds of things. I saw one, uh, application when they were using it to like test and debug somebody's website in a somewhat serious way, which kind of surprised me. Newsweek used it for a while as well. Um, when you entered it on Newsweek, it would replace all the headlines with uh, something about zombie attacks. That's awesome. Nice. <laughs> I just tried fluffpost.com, by the way, and it still works today. So, <laughs> yeah, some of those are really funny, actually. Some of the headlines paired with the, the pet photos make me laugh. <laughs> so, how did you actually find it on archive.org? I would assume, are they loading it from a CDN? I would assume people would be minifying it out, or is there a string you can search for? So the way, um, yeah, I mean, if you just generally search for konami.js, um, I mean, that's about as well as I'm able to do it. Uh, the way that I, um, so the, the example that I had back in the day, like the example code that people could copy and paste, basically introduced Konami as like a giant global to your, uh, your site. And so for whatever reason, it's, it's somewhat easy to find like that code. If I, if you start searching through archive.org, it's also easy to find people like referencing it. And then through a little sleuthing, you can kind of pull up old versions of um, sites for their reference. Like that's how I found the Tesla thing. Like I didn't find Konami JS like in Tesla's code on archive.org. I found an old forum post reference to it being available on Tesla.org in like 2010 or 11 or whatever. And then through archive.org, I went back and I was able to kind of look at the source and figure it out. I'm like, oh yeah, it is in there. That's funny. Yeah, what else was it used on? Uh, I think Anonymous hacked some .gov site and threw it on there, <laughs> which is kind of weird. It, it wasn't like a real, I mean, it was a real, real compromise, but it was, it was goofy. They just, I think um, it loaded uh, another JavaScript library that um, makes a game of like asteroids appear on top of the page, and then you can start shooting at all the elements on the page, and they explode or something like that. You mentioned that Marvel.com used it, and I read that it broke Marvel.com somehow. Do they... Did they forget a semicolon? Did they use it wrong? Or was it their actual Easter egg that caused problems? Technically, technically I did it. Technically, I broke it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but it was only for about a minute. Statute of limitations out by now? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, it was 10 years ago. I, I don't think anyone <laughs> noticed. This was, this was before um, all the Avengers movies and things. So I feel like it was getting slightly less traffic, but clearly still tons. Um, I remember somebody on Twitter, like, within a year of me releasing that thing, just pinged me and said, hey, I wonder what happens if you go to marvel.com and use the Konami code. Just like his kind way of letting me know that, hey, we used your thing on this thing. And I went and I checked it out and I think um, like Deadpool is like a weasel or something popped up on the page or something that was the Easter egg for that one. And I thought, oh, that's really cool. And then I, um, I looked at the code and I'm like, hey, they're using my project. That's great. And... I got really excited and I thought, oh, oh, you know what I should do? I should make that one improvement that I wanted to make the Konami JS. I, I don't even remember what it was, to be perfectly honest. And the way they had implemented it, they implemented it in the way that I had in my example documentation, which was to link directly to the raw file, like on Google code, I think at the time, or possibly GitHub. There was a brief overlap where I had it kind of on both early on that I'll talk about later. 
But anyway, they were linking directly to the raw file, like in the repositories it was exposed. So when I updated it, it updated Konami JS on their site. And I, I don't, I didn't test it. I didn't think it through very quickly. I just pushed it really quickly because I was kind of excited. And then I went back to it and all the images were like skewed. Like it was clearly broken. And I reloaded it a few times trying to figure out what was happening before I realized, oh, I think I did that. <laughs> and I looked in the console and I figured, I'm like, oh yeah, I think I screwed that up. I should. And then I reverted it really quickly. <laughs> So it was broken for like a minute. So apologies to Marvel if they're hearing this. Well, it could have been a lot worse. I mean, you had you had the capabilities of executing arbitrary JavaScript on their website. So it could have gotten real nasty for them if you were a malicious person. But uh, good thing you're not. Yeah, I know. I mean, that crossed my mind later, actually. I mean, many years later when I realized that um, a lot of people were doing that. You know, tons of people were linking, especially when I moved it to GitHub, a lot of people were linking directly to like the raw file kind of in, in the um, in, on the GitHub page, uh, kind of using it as a CDN, which I don't think was really the way they wanted you to do that back then. Um, yeah, and that crossed my mind. I'm like, oh, that's kind of scary and bad. And that's a lot of people not realizing they're trusting me to not, you know, make their website redirect to something stupid or who knows what. Or inject your cryptocurrency miner and harvest the world. <laughs> God, I know that was that was less on the horizon in two thousand nine, but yeah. This episode is brought to you by Linode, our cloud server of choice. It is so easy to get started with Linode. Servers start at just five bucks a month. We host changelog on Linode cloud servers and we love it. We get great 24 seven support. Zeus like powers with native SSDs, a super fast 40 gigabit per second network and incredibly fast CPUs for processing. And we trust Linode because they keep it fast. They keep it simple. Check them out at linode.com slash changelog. George, one thing that's notable, even for a sort of a silly library, as I, I believe you use the word silly, so I'm free to, uh, such as Konami JS, something that's just adding a specific keyboard shortcut to a website, is that it's gone on for a long time. And whether you know there's very serious open source projects, and then there's less serious open source projects, but nonetheless, like they're still open source, and uh, it's a decade later, so the time span of the project is interesting. And as you mentioned, you were on Google Code; it since moved to GitHub. The, the web has changed, even if Konami.js maybe was feature complete back then. We can talk about that, too. Maybe you've been adding stuff. But tell us about the time span, the 10 years. What's changed? What have you had to do? Sometimes just maintaining the status quo for a thing that even if you think it's silly or don't even use it anymore, because the web changes, you, your code will rot. Tell us about that. Yeah, so that's actually, in some ways, I think definitely been the most interesting part of the project is it's it's survived, you know, 10 years in JavaScript years, which is like probably closing in on a century or something in people years. So when I first threw the project out there into the wild, I put it on Google Code, and I think it was using Subversion at the time. Um, it, I don't think they offered Git at that, at that time. I kind of weighed my options. Like I, I, I was going back and forth between GitHub, Google Code, and I think SourceForge, which is also still around, but I seldom, I think, 
didn't think about that anymore. Wow. Yeah, and so I, I chose to put it out there. Eventually, Google Code got shut down, and I moved it to GitHub, which ended up being the right choice, I think. At the time, I think when I first put it out there, I wanted to work on all browsers and devices, so I, I had to work on IE6. That was a big requirement, I remember. And I wanted to work on IE6, and I also wanted to work on, like I said, my, my iPhone at the time, my iPhone 1. <laughs> my iPhone just, you know, uh, it was just called the iPhone. There wasn't a number because it wasn't anything else. And I also wanted it at the time to not be jQuery dependent, even though jQuery, like I said, was seemingly on like 90% of the web. I was starting to see even at that point that like, okay, you know, jQuery is like getting us out of the woods, you know, here. But I think long term, you know, I don't want to have to load a 100 kilobyte like library every single time someone comes to the page, even if there's all these like, you know, strong arguments for it, all these advantages. I just, I, there's a purist inside of me that doesn't like to be too dependent on you know, giant sprawling pieces of code that, uh, you know, most of my site is not making use of. Well, you were ahead of the game in that regard because people are learning that now or have over time that they, and I've seen a, a rise in zero dependency JavaScript libraries, which is awesome. But back then, I mean, it, I think you were, you were ahead of the curve in that regard and probably helped you maintain it over time because you weren't dependent. Oh, Totally did, I think. Yeah, and so that was the interesting thing. So it was also my first foray into releasing like a project that anybody else actually looked at and used and wanted to submit changes to and stuff like that. And so it was kind of a fun adventure in trying to debug some some curious edge cases. I remember when I was on Google Code, there was some like I think like using the Conqueror browser on Ubuntu, like some early version of Ubuntu, like created problems. And I, I don't know how or if that got resolved, honestly, but like things I had never considered, things that probably would not come up now. Uh, and the other interesting thing I uh, noticed when I released it was um, a lot of the pull requests that came in were things I had not ever thought of or in some cases cared about too much. I had like couple pull requests come in that just like changed my spaces to tabs and then back to spaces and i'm like whatever man okay <laughs> I, I <don't> know. sorry <laughs> that just kind of made me laugh because i realized like oh yeah there's people have strong opinions on these things and i guess i should form it's like i i have less strong opinions on some of those things but i realize i need to make a decision and not just you know merge every request that comes in my way requests came in for um like module loaders and dependency things and people's very specific tool chains that they're using at the time that I was not using in a couple of cases not even familiar with. And I remember early on, early on, I kind of merged like a lot of almost any change that came in, which was a little silly. I mean, after vetting it a little bit, but um, I became a little bit more um, judicious as, that, as, as time went on, uh, a little more discerning. Yeah, because I realized that Again, getting back to the jQuery thing, I'm like, you know, the more I, I want this library just to do basically like two things. I want it to stand alone. I want anybody to be able to include this in their project, even if they're not really a developer. Like that was part of the appeal to me. I want it to be something that, you know, very beginning developers or people who just like to dabble. Like I want it to appeal and be usable by like dilettantes, right? I want, I want a very low barrier to entry. And every time I started to introduce some sort of like package management thing the barrier to entry got like raised up a notch i realized and every time i looked at that i thought i don't know if that's something that needs to necessarily be a part of a project like this and so figuring out a balance between like accommodating people who use those tool chains and things like that and versus making it a required part of using the project has been an interesting um 
balance, I think. Yeah, it definitely raises the usability aspect of it. Because oftentimes when you do open source, like you might want to make changes where you're like, oh, I could change everything to TypeScript because it's better and like various things. But then if you weigh out, does it actually affect the end user? <laughs> and if it doesn't, or if it does by adding extra complexity, then it might not be as useful. Like it might help you as a developer who's like maintaining it maybe. But over time, it, it can get a bit, yeah, as you said, like less people might be keen on using it or it might cause issues down the road if someone, if you change code and then it's no longer compatible and then someone using an older version updates and then it no longer works because their system is not built to handle the code, that, the new code that you wrote and so on. Exactly. As soon as, yeah, so in a roundabout way, you know, by trying to make it compatible with, like, I remember one request coming in for like compatibility with Ender.js or something like that. And I, I've never used Ender.js and I don't even recall exactly what the change was, but I realized that like, oh, if I introduce that into my code, then I'm sort of beholden to however that project changes down the road. And I, you know, again, getting back to it, like, well, the pro this project is, you know, delightfully frivolous. And so... You know, I, I just sort of question, but I think that's like a good, even though the, this project, you know, because of its frivolous nature, you know, I can make choices like that. But uh, I, I think it's a good exercise in just sort of looking at almost any project you're releasing and like realizing what other projects out there you're beholden to are dependent on, you know, whether it's a literal dependency or just like accommodating certain, you know, styles or, or services or whatever it is. Because um, I think the web today is a much more I was going to say stack of cards. It sounds a little like <laughs> like more fragile than intended, but it feels much more like a stack of cards than it did, I think, to me, like 10 years ago. Things are so interdependent, and it's, it allows us to make really wonderful things, but there's also a certain fragility and sort of, a, I don't know what to say about it, actually, but sort of a, there's something about it that I sometimes concerns me, and I, I don't want it to be lost that we can build things that are not dependent on you know, a million other packages or like one of the big three or four tech companies and their products and things like that. I think it's really wonderful that you uh, have found that balance in this project. You've Because this project has been around since, what, 2009? And you're still like making changes and updating like minor things and people are still using it. And it's just incredible because oftentimes whenever it comes to open source, people talk about being just sick of a project and wanting to just pass off the burden to someone else. They're like, I'm done. I've maintained this for years. I want to pass the baton on to like someone else who might be excited and wants to make those changes. But you are able to make that, like find that very nice medium where you still enjoy working on it and you're making changes to like, you know, like slight changes to the documentation or whatever to make sure that it's up to date just a little without like being overwhelmed by it, which I think is really neat. And, but it also points to like exactly what you talked about earlier because Konami is so specific <laughs> and it's, re it's really like tiny and super fun. And I think people tend to forget that sometimes when we think about creating a project, either an open source or whatever, we tend to blow it out of proportion. We're like, oh, we can't just create this tiny thing. We have to make it a huge project that does like all these things and has compatibilities with all these other frameworks. And then that initial fun like side project becomes a huge task and then people just abandon it and never finish it so it's really neat to see that you're able to take something like it seems silly but it's also just like emblematic of just like joy <laughs> and you really enjoyed it and that totally shows because you have been maintaining it and it's been up since 2009 and this is 
whole history. And I don't think that's the case for a lot of projects out there, which I think is notable. Yeah, I, I can relate to a lot of what you're talking about. I mean, it's interesting. Over the, I definitely had the temptation to make it do more a few times, particularly early on. Every every once in a while, I, I have. There was a while I explored. I'm like, maybe I should make it this really elaborate, like Easter egg framework library, and you know, do all do all things for all people. But I kind of I kind of saw where that would go, and I'm like, that seems that seems like uh, something I would not really want to maintain, and kind of you know kills the spirit of what it is it does one thing it does it well i mean it could definitely be modernized and that's something i've been sort of picking at the past like three or four years off and on i've like opened my own issues i I made a little effort last i I want to modernize it not so much for performance sake like it doesn't you know it works and it as far as i can tell it seems like it'll work forever i mean (laughs) at this point but um i'd like to modernize it just for you know, because it is a script that a lot of beginning developers stumble into, I feel like it'd be beneficial to rewrite it in a way that, mo- that is closer to what modern JavaScript looks like. But that that comes with its own set of hurdles, which is really interesting, which we could get into later. Like I started diving into, because um, I don't really want to necessarily lose the the broad compatibility. Because right now it, work, it, it works on Internet Explorer 7. Like last I checked, I, I think I dropped six support at some point. I had to have like a because I think you couldn't call like ad event listener, like you had to call something else. I'm like blanking on what it was called. So I had like a function that specifically just used whichever you know method was available. Because we that's kind of how you had to do it back then. Yeah. So like figuring out how to do that has actually been really tricky, and one of the things that's kept me from rewriting it all this time. It's like I don't really know how to rewrite it in a modern way that keeps it, you know, compatible for everybody. And like if I do, then I have to introduce something like Babel, which is awesome and great but i'm like well then we're getting back to the whole like i'm getting these are you know i'm introducing these heavy-handed dependencies for something that is really very trivial and kind of frivolous um and is that really necessary here like who is that like what's the point yeah well i often warn about the big rewrite but at 150 lines of code you know it's it's at least within scope of something you could accomplish that being said i would actually discourage it because of the reason that you said like Introducing a build step, introducing a dependency, uh, or any sort of complication here, or I actually think it's awesome that it runs on IE7, even if that doesn't matter anymore, you know? It's kind of like, at a certain point, libraries like this are fun, like you said, frivolous, silly. They're more art than they are anything else, maybe. And so, you know, let it be what it is. I, I'm reading your readme about the, the 2.0 reader. I was going to ask you about that. And I, I get it. I understand the desire there, especially I think that's a good motivation. Like, what if somebody who's just coming to JavaScript reads this? Well, I think they'll learn about, you know, ES5 <laughs> here, you know, they'll learn things. Um, and it's it's formatted well, it's readable, you know. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people focus a lot on constantly updating things and making sure that your code is up to date. So, like, don't use promises, use async await, don't use, like, dot char code or dot key code use dot key and like all these various things with the new updates sometimes some things are good when they they stay as is because it's it's not that it's not that you're in stasis and that you're not like you know purpose you're not updating and you're consistently staying to keep the status quo or whatever or not growing or whatever the association is with like keeping the same thing yeah, maintaining the current state of things, but it's there's there's definitely something to be said when something works. I just think that if you can make an update that will not 
change it drastically, do it. But if that update is purely frivolous or purely for the sake of updating something, then why do it? But I really want to hear this discussion about like key code versus char code. And yeah, so go ahead. I will. I'll, I'll touch on that one second. I just wanted to speak to something that you mentioned. I mean, I, I totally agree. And what's interesting is I think that sort of um, the, the change for the sake of change is something that sort of in some ways I feel like permeates our industry massively. And it's, it's interesting, like 10 years maintaining this project has been an interesting perspective on that, but also just 10 years of being a developer is an interesting perspective on, on that, seeing things come and go, you know, deciding what changes are really worthwhile. And like, you know, like if someone stumbles across my project on GitHub, like they'll probably think, oh, this isn't maintained very much anymore. They haven't really made a change in a couple of years. And I think that mentality in some way sort of serves into this, uh, you know, this idea that we need to be constantly changing and things. There's, I, I feel like modern, develop some, modern development has more in common with like fashion than actual progress sometimes. It's kind of an interesting thing. I, I think about this a lot, especially when I'm, I've, um, I've taught a lot of, um, boot camps and things here in portland and to be like beginning developers and when we get to javascript like you know it's a little like telling them exactly what to look at and what to do and when they do their own research like it's it's hard to guide them in the right way and sometimes and tell them what they should be it's really hard to do exactly what you said because github tends to prioritize like when you look at a github repo and it hasn't been updated and i do the same thing when I go on a GitHub project and it hasn't been updated in years, I'm like, okay, I should not use this because there's a chance it will break everything that I try to use it on. And that might not be true. It, it requires investigation, but it's, I guess maybe if you have like a build that says like all oh, builds passing or something, because otherwise it's hard to tell if it's not being maintained, if it's broken. And that happened with like, um, I used Hammer.js for a really long time and I really liked it because it does a lot of gesture events and stuff. And for, for a time, it wasn't maintained. Like the, the maintainers kind of stepped away and just like stopped updating it. And I was like, oh, maybe this is something I shouldn't be investing my time in because like there's no active development on it. But it was still working. Like it's not like I could still use a lot of the gestures that were on there, like swipe and whatever. And it gave me access to that. but just the fact that it wasn't an active development made me and i think also like people i was pitching it to like managers were like oh we shouldn't use that because it's not actively maintained i don't know if the industry our industry has a has like a sense of how exactly to fix that issue because prioritization is always given to like the latest and greatest thing and so discoverability is also an issue because if something has been around for a long time but hasn't gotten a recent update it tends to kind of get shafted next to something else. I feel like we've done a show. I mean, a, a, a part of that, Divya, is the individual responsibility of vetting your dependencies before you select them. And really what you're talking about is like, how do we, how do we message with each other? How does George say, hey, this thing hasn't been, like the actual .js file, the main one, hasn't been updated, like you said, George, since July 2018. That doesn't mean the project's unmaintained. So... Uh, we need ways of messaging to each other. Hey, I'm done with this. I'm never going to touch it again. It is unmaintained. Or here's a fork that works. The problem with that is the person who's burnt out or let, leaves the project, they don't want to come back and leave a, put a sign up that says unmaintained because they're gone, right? So sometimes that doesn't happen. But I think, I feel like we did a show on this, or at least we talked about it a little bit. Maybe we should do a specific show on heuristics for dependency selection and for, for judging if something's worth pulling in or not worth pulling in all the things you said, because there's tons of like, 
if you're just going to GitHub and looking for the, the JS project with the most stars, you're doing it wrong. And that being said, doing it right isn't necessarily easy um, or even intuitive because the intuitive thing is look for the most popular one that must be the, the best. And so maybe we should follow up and, and do a whole show or at least a whole segment on dependency selection. If we haven't done it before, I feel like maybe I'm repeating myself. So uh, maybe there is one out there in the JS Party archive. We need George to open up this Pandora's box. <laughs> yes, George, tell us about your <laughs> bike shed, the key codes for us. Oh yeah, so the key. I have to like remind myself. I, I have to. I, I documented it pretty well a few years ago in one of these issues. Like basically, as a note to myself, because people weren't logging a ton of issues at the time. But I wanted to. I think this is when I was looking into just generally modernizing the script. Let me see here. I'm actually going to pull up the issue with my own notes just to make sure I remember this right. So basically, there's a lot of different ways to figure out what key is being pressed if you're listening for keyboard events on a web page. And the ways that I was using earlier in this script were all, if you go to the, you know, um, MDN documentation, there's warnings about this way being deprecated, like in phased out, you should not use this. This is not the way it's in the spec, et cetera, et cetera. And I did a deep dive into that. What I discovered is, in theory, there's three different ways that I was previously using that I should not be using. And there are two ways, two modern ways, code and key that uh should be used i'll actually i'll add a direct link to that issue in the slack if people want to see it but in my experimentation the ways that are being deprecated work on all the browsers but the new ways don't <laughs> or have like some weird inconsistencies in them and so i wasn't sure what to do i'm like well if i leave it yeah, i actually don't even remember offhand which one i'm currently using i think you're using key code yeah so i'm using key code and um yeah and so key code is one of the ones that i technically shouldn't be using but it works the trade-off is also there's no unless you have an external keyboard you're probably not using a keyboard on these devices we're talking about i think that might have been what influenced my decision i think to not change that i can't i can't actually remember now i know trying to get it to work on my ipad pro is something i <laughs> tried to do a few years ago so i added a couple of I added a couple of keyboard shortcuts to changelog.com. I actually remember going into this exact situation that I think I'm reading in your issue here, George. Because um, all I added was while the on-site player on changelog.com is playing, you can hit escape to exit it. You can hit spacebar to pause. And then an S will toggle the speed of playback, which is actually no UI for that. But So it's a little bit of an Easter egg. But these are things that are minor. Um, and I just did the, you know, the key down events and, and switched on the... But I am using key code. And I tested it on modern browsers and it was... That's the one that you're using as well, although you're not supposed to be. So I guess we're in the same camp. The way I think of it is, in our case, you know, it's kind of a progressive enhancement thing anyways. Like if it doesn't work, uh, the site is not broken. So I just went with key code and went from there. Yeah, that's how I, I actually have, um, you know, it's funny if you, if you go to the 2.0 branch somewhere in, my, in that repository, I actually, I wrote a new modern, I rewrote a modern version of Konami.js. It's just kind of sitting there. Someone, a couple of people had collaborated and helped me out with that. Um, and I, I used one of the new key detection, keyboard event methods or whatever. Um, I don't remember actually which one. And I, I used whichever one worked on my iPad, I think, is what I recall. And then someone followed up on that issue and let them know, oh, hey, I remapped my keys to use Dvorak or whatever, and it doesn't actually work. And so I discovered this whole new, like, you know, hornet's nest of, like, curious issues where like certain one of those like tracks like the letter that you're pressing but one other ones actually track like the physical sort of key location 
Yeah, and then it just made me think about it in a way I had not considered. So I'm like, oh, that's a whole different nest of problems that I have to consider. So yeah, it was just really funny how like basically the what you would think is a very simple thing turned out to be, you know, kind of a rabbit hole when I started going into it. This episode is brought to you by Gage. Gage is a free and open source test automation tool by ThoughtWorks. The goal of the tool is to take the pain out of test automation and to help with this Gage supports specifications of Markdown, which are easy to read and easy to write, reusable specifications to simplify your code, which makes refactoring easier and less code means less time maintaining code. And finally, integrations. Use Gage with your favorite tools and your IDEs and the ecosystem of your choice. Selenium, Saihi Pro, CIC and CD tools like GoCD, Jenkins, Travis, and IDE support for Visual Studio, VS Code, IntelliJ, and more. Head to gage.org slash jsparty to learn more and give it a try. Again, gage.org slash jsparty. Well, we thought it would be fun to finish this conversation about Konami JS by talking about other JavaScript libraries that are similar but different. One thing I love about our community is we have fun. We do silly, artsy, what do you call them? Not superfluous, frivolous things. Like, why not? Let's have some fun. It's the web. These are the things that I love about the web is what makes it what it is. And so Konami JS, not the only one. We thought we'd point out a few others and discuss them as well. So there is. One that is pretty cool is that everybody knows who the party parrot is, right? Party parrot. Uh, that fun little animated dancing parrot that is probably all up in your slacks or at least shows up in random parts of the interwebs. Uh, there's a lot of actually JavaScript libraries in support of the party parrot. Uh, the coolest one that I found is parrotify.github.io. Party parrot as a service. So party parrot as a service, you enter an image URL to overlay, you put an image in, you choose your parrot, the original, the OG parrot, the flip parrot, middle, I'm not sure what middle means, they just kind of, it dances to the middle instead of to the side, the conga parrot, which is just a whole conga line, or the board parrot, which just sits there and doesn't actually party, not much of a party parrot if you ask me, and then you, uh, you get your party parrot as a service and you get a URL basically that you can pass into Slack or into Reddit or whatever. And it's all powered by JavaScript. So uh, Divya or George, are you fans of the Party Parrot? Do you use the Party Parrot? Some people love the Party Parrot. Other people despise it. I tend to be pro-Party Parrot myself, but interested what you guys think. In addition to Party Parrot, there's Party Porg, and then there's Party Blob, which is just like a blob <laughs> dancing around. It's great. So much fun. That's funny. I, I am also pro party parrot. I was trying to actually find the. I was trying to find it the other day and put it into something. To, uh, yesterday when something launched for this client of mine, I couldn't find it. I was disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll link up that repo party parrot as a service. It is a. I think it's like a Node.js backend. Yes, it is on up on GitHub. One hundred percent JavaScript. Of course, cult of the part cult of party parrot.com is where it all began. So that's your canonical party parrot website. Uh, Party Parrot as a service likely linked to from there and is hosted on Heroku. So uh, thank you to the creator of that for letting us all get free Party Parrots without having to... Uh, but again, another opportunity to hotlink somebody's thing and, and then get, get pwned later. So maybe, maybe just host your own Party Parrot would be the takeaway advice there. 
Well, let's move on from from party pair. Uh, Divya, you added one uh, that I wasn't familiar with. Confetti JS. What's tell, tell us about this? It allows you to put confetti on your website. It's pretty much the the base of it. And there's a lot of like similar ones. I think there's confetti JS, which is I think just a background of confetti. So your background can be falling actively falling confetti. And then there's there's like what's the other one? There's canvas confetti, which allows you to have confetti in specific directions. So you can, you could have like a base a cannon which like fires from the bottom and then a random one that fires from like a random direction and then you can have like fireworks where confetti pops up everywhere and it's kind of it's like super fun and the amount of code that you have to write is pretty pretty minimal the only one that i actually kind of wish i'd merged and still look at once in a while is uh, someone uh submitted a uh, um a pull request for um gamepad functionality so if you had a joystick actually plugged in your computer, you could do that. And I thought that was actually pretty cool and in the spirit of what I made. Um, uh, but that I, I don't know. It's just been on my back burner for a long time, and I don't actually have a joystick to test it with. I think that's the bigger problem. So a couple other libraries. These, these were lots of fun. These got lots of traction. Man, this has probably happened around the same time as Konami.js, maybe eight, nine years ago. Uh, Vapor.js. So I mentioned, George, that you were ahead of the game on uh, dependency-free JavaScript libraries, but Thomas Fuchs was really ahead of the game with code-free JavaScript libraries. So vaporjs.com, the world's smallest and fastest JavaScript library. This was hilarious. It's literally there's it's empty. It's an empty file, but uh, lots of fun. Lots of fun with that one. So the the great thing about this is I think when it hit Reddit and and Twitter and whatnot, it got a ton of pull requests and they're all hilarious. So like somebody added a minified version. Uh, so in the repo, there's vapor.min, you know, and then there's like a vapor model file and they're all just empty, but people had lots of fun with that one. That sounds a lot like, um, I think someone created like Thanos JS, where <laughs> it just like randomly removes files. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> oh, you got to find that one. Oh, hilarious. And then uh, a follow up to vapor.js, which was another good joke. Actually, it's by the same, it's by Thomas Fuchs as well and has a, an awesome unicorn on the diagram. So people were concerned about Vapor.js because it might not be secure enough, um, even though it wasn't the most lightweight JavaScript library in history. So next he followed up with the, the much lauded semicolon.js, a more secure and reliable Vapor.js. And so this one really secured the library. And uh, it's not quite as lightweight. You know, you're going to put on a little bit of bloat, but that's the trade-off for security. Uh, semicolon.js is uh, literally just a semicolon. It's the only character in the library, but Thomas got a second round of laughs on that one. That's pretty funny. Last but certainly not least, probably even most, maybe the most successful, the one that everybody knows about is cloud to butt I remember that one. Oh, man. This one made, this one actually, so vapor.js uh, those made like the developer rounds you know like the reddits the hacker news change logs etc but cloud to butt actually went mainstream so cloud to butt from maybe five six years ago was right when the word the cloud was becoming you know the marketing term of the day uh, amongst your big tech co's and there's a chrome extension that replaces every occurrence of the the phrase the cloud with my butt and I have to admit, I installed this one and rocked it for a little while. I, I did too for a while. <laughs> Confession I time. I feel like it might be older than that. I remember um, 
the person who developed it uh, is uh, from Portland. I think he works at Panic. Stephen Frank or works at Panic. He founded it. Yeah, I remember. I remember that one. That one made me laugh. This one was dangerous because it would so it would scan every web page you're on. It was a Chrome extension that would just string replace straight up, and the cloud the phrase the cloud was used quite a bit, but not so much that you'd always recognize it. That's kind of the fun thing about it. Like you you'd kind of forget that the thing was there, and then you'd see like a a big call to action on somebody's marketing pot, you know marketing page, and it would say like it's time to move to my butt or something like that. Um, and then you just la- you get a laugh all, all over again, you know, because you'd forgotten a little bit about it. But it's dangerous because a lot of these times, you know, you're, you're browsing in a meeting or with your boss and you forget that the extension's there and it can, it can get real nasty. So I believe there's a screenshot gallery if you're not so brave to install this one, but you want to check out some of the funnier Cloud to Butts. Uh, we'll link that one up. Panic Steve links to it. It's on Flickr, so that kind of dates the library as well. Back when Flickr was the place you'd post these things. Nowadays, it would probably be on Instagram, but Safari version, Firefox version, Opera version. That was a lot of fun. Meanwhile, Divya has found Thanos.js. There it is. A casual but dangerous package that will let Thanos snap fingers and delete <laughs> random files inside a directory. It uses like an FS on LinkSync or whatever to delete files. So it traverses your directory and then just randomly deletes things. It's very dangerous, but so is Thanos. <laughs> I love the technical details. Yeah, it says technical details. Yes, it deletes the files. For those of you who are confused about what this package does, exactly half the files are deleted. Each file is given a chance at random, and either the top 50% of the files or the bottom 50%. Yeah. It's like a binary search I, I, or something. I really want it to just look at my node modules folder and just delete stuff <laughs> half the time. <laughs> because half the time, like, I mean, going back to like what we were talking about dependencies, sometimes I just download one thing. I'll npm install or yarn and yarn add one library, and then I'll look at my node modules, and I have like fifty. I'm like what? <laughs> How did that happen? Because it's like, oh, it has to do this, and then it has to download Core JS, and then and then sometimes if I if you end up adding a dependency that has like a bug in it or whatever, you end up having an issue where it's incompatible with some dependency that isn't actually the library itself. It's like another library trying to work because that library was updated. And then the the one you're using hasn't been updated, so it's like not compatible anymore. And then you get like, hey, there's an issue with CoreJS or or some something random. And then you're like, I don't know. And then, I have you ever gone into a node modules folder and tried to fix something? Because I have quite often. I've spelunked, but I've never actually made changes. You know, like I read through things in there, but I never actually tried to fix anything. Just because I'm like, I need this to work for now while I'm in dev mode, and then. And then you try to grab whatever code change you made to the package, and then you create a PR, but then you're like, I don't know if it'll work because I don't know how to test this. <laughs> and it's like horrible. It's horrible. Yeah. That's the fun stuff. So, uh, real quick on this Thanos.js, if you look at the usage for this thing, Thanos.js is the name of the little command line tool, I guess. And then you say snap finger, you pass it the snap fingers argument for it to do its thing. And then if you really want full power, that's limited power. If you want full power, you have to pass in the dash dash with infinity gauntlet glove argument. And then it does its thing. This is hilarious. And notably, I suppose, and we'll close it down here, on NPM, you know, you attach the keywords and they attach the not safe for work keyword to this. Not because it has, you know, 
NSFW <laughs> content because you do not want to run this Thanos JS at your work. It is not safe. That's hilarious. It's not safe for your computer. Like, period. <laughs> it's not safe, <laughs> it's for, not anything. safe for anything. <laughs> oh, good stuff. Well, links to all these and more, everything referenced in our show notes. Uh, George, thanks so much for joining us today. Any, any last words? Anything about the future of Konami JS or anything you're working on nowadays you want to tell folks about before we call the show? Oh, gosh. Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. Um, as far as Konami JS goes, um, I, I still I have not completely shelved the idea of a 2.0, so I'm definitely open to discussions and issues. And my, my thought is maybe to release it as like just perpetually leave it on a separate branch so if people want to make contributions or something there i'm all ears um and beyond that uh i don't really have anything to promote that's reasonable <laughs> how do people reach you online i used to just people google me because i a long time ago i think i got basically every george mandis username and domain that's out there at some point but if you go to george.mand.is uh that's my site and blog and anything i'm working on you can there you can also find me on twitter where i don't say a lot but i'm on there very cool well thanks for joining us george it's been a lot of fun hey thanks for help making the web silly and frivolous all these years yeah. uh, we do appreciate <laughs> it and uh that's our show for this week we'll see y'all next time all right thank you for tuning in to js party this week tune in live on thursdays at 1 p.m u.s eastern at changelaw.com slash live Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows. Head to changelaw.com slash community. And do us a favor. Share this show with a friend. We just an Apple podcast. Go into Overcast and favorite it. And thank you to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast to fix things around here at Changelaw because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. We're hosted on Leno Cloud Servers. Head to Leno.com slash Changelog. Check them out and support this show. Our music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at Changelog.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. <laughs>